We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Um, it might be useful to, tr- to follow along in an actual printed Bible this morning. So if you have your own great, there's uh, black uh, pew Bibles scattered around. Because uh, I want to actually go through um, this, these verses I just read uh, somewhat line by line uh, to unpack the meaning that's uh, contained in it. So it's Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we'll begin at verse 3. Oh, sorry. Good question. Um, here you go. Nine, page 976. 976. Okay, I think, think we just about all got it. Um, so one of the great learning objectives of Lent is that we might more accurately assess the gravity of our own sins. It's one of the hoped-for objectives, because it's one of the great tricks that the prince of the power of the air pulls on us is warping our interior scales, the thing by which we weigh uh, sins, the sins of others or our our own sins. It is the case that what in objective reality is a a 10-ton offense, the enemy sort of, you know, tilts the scales and says, oh, no, no, that only weighs a few ounces. And, and Lent is one of the times to try and sort of get rid of this scale tilter and assess things for what they truly are. And Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the many passages in the scripture that can help correct our scales on this front. So God, um, speaking through St. Paul, says in verse 2, um, he brings up, if you think of it like this, Paul names in verse 1, uh, sort of our sins, but then he kind of scales up to the big picture, and he just talks about that. He then describes the course of this world. Think of course like the course that a river takes in a riverbed, the ordinary course of this world. So really, the whole scope of ordinary human existence. And I, I'm confident that Paul doesn't have here in view just sort of the worst fringes of humanity, like not just the, the things obviously evil, like the Hitlers of history, um, but just ordinary human existence. He describes ordinary human existence, the course of this world, as following the prince of the power of the air. Demons have traditionally been understood to inhabit the air, as in just the air that we breathe, the air close to earth. And so powers, we know that as a New Testament word when it says, you know, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers. So the prince of the powers of the air is just a fancy, sort of theologically explanatory way of describing Satan. Right? It says, ordinary life follows Satan, which is already now we're in the realm of, uh, this is apocalyptic, right? Very little about ordinary life of breakfast and putting on your socks. And, you know, you wouldn't think that ordinary life follows the course of Satan, but this is what the Bible is telling us. Ordinary life follows the course of Satan. And it says the demonic influence on mankind, you know, that, that verse there, the spirit that is now at work, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's the evil spirit that's now at work. Uh, 
renders ordinary human beings as sons of disobedience, which is a haunting title, right? kind of one of those Bible, biblical phrases that catches in the air. May we never be described as sons of disobedience. And in verse 3, we are in fact reminded that all of us, every last human being on this planet, past, present, and future, are among that number. In a way, Paul is saying here in different language, the sort of more famous verse of, uh, there is none who does good, no, not one. Right? Not a single one. No one escapes this description. So Paul kind of zooms up to the, this big picture, the ordinary workings of the world, following Satan, rendering us sons of disobedience. And then he kind of boils it back down. Well, what does this sort of consist of in our lives? Right? Is it just sort of the really malicious acts that sort of show? Well, look, you know, the fact that some people end up being Hitler, therefore, you know, there's the proof that Satan is guiding the things of the world. No. Paul says simply what it consists of is living in the passions of the flesh. Again, that passions there, that, that, that's almost a technical word, which God very usefully uh, unpacks for us in the very next part of the verse. What are the passions of the flesh? Very simply, at the most simple description, carrying out the desires, morally neutral word, desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's it. At the end of the day, in sort of lived life, the thing that Paul says is the sort of lived out experience of being a part of the world that's that's, that is following Satan is just simply following the desires of the body and the mind. And I, I'm grateful that the Lord also said, and the mind, because we might confuse you know, passions of the flesh as, as if it's the visible material creation that's really the problem. But you know, our minds are somehow pure. It's like, no, no, every part of us, body and mind, just the desires of our body and mind, is the, the root, the rootstock of all the evil that comes out into the world. Um, we could say desire, um, to, uh, I'm going to use the phrase selfish desire, because here, in a way, you could say that's a redundancy. Desire of itself, as it's born out of human nature, is selfish, and that's the problem. Um, this verse comes as a shock to me. Right? I would not expect Paul to sort of, in explaining the course of the world run by Satan as manifest in just the des your own desires. It seems too severe. But then I think, well, why does it seem too severe? What is that sort of thing in me that's, that triggers it? Well, that's the enemy who wants to always tilt the scales and say, oh, no, no, the Bible's being too severe on this one. Right? The tilter of the scales is at work. We... Um, we so often, I think, even cover and justify selfish desire with all this jargon that we use to ourselves. We, we might call it a need. You know, I already needed to do that, as if it was some cosmic necessity. We might call it pragmatism, or honesty, or prudence, or self-care. Now, just to be clear, I think there are good meanings to those words. There is a good thing called self-care. Right? There is a good thing called prudence. But I, I think it's going to be very appalling on Judgment Day how many things we sort of slap that label on that Judgment Day will expose us. Really, that was just selfish desire. And I just called it self-care to be able to do more of it. All of us, apart from Christ, we're all simply looking out for our own desires. And Ephesians chapter 2 says that in and of itself... Right? Paul, Paul is very happy to name concrete sins. Right? There's lots of those lists in the New Testament where it says fornication, debauchery, da, 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 you know, idolatry. 
Paul's not listing sins here. Just the desires of the, of the heart, of the body and the mind, he says, render us as justly deserving the wrath of God. Right? Children of wrath. A way of, it's a Semitic way of saying the thing you're deserving of. Children, the deserving of wrath. Deserving of the wrath of God that is manifesting most finally as hell. Right? Eternal torment because of the desires of the heart. Again, this, doesn't, this is not intuitive. Our moral scales are off. And this is where I think the scriptures, as in so many places, present this divide, this decision that we should make. Do we trust our own, our own moral intuition, which we know is not fully informed by the mind of Christ, or do we trust the scriptures? Right? That's the fork in the road. And if we say we trust the scriptures, then we're forced to say, okay, Lord, to me, this doesn't add up. This feels like it would be way too severe to say, I'm a child of wrath because I follow my own desires. But don't trust the censor, right? Don't trust the, the broken scales. Trust the clear mirror of scripture. We are by nature who we just are as human beings from the day we come into this world. By nature, children of wrath. Um, it's not how many or how grievous specific sins that we've done are that make us deserving of this wrath. It's in fact actually at root the appetites, the imbalance, longings, the drives, the angers, the cravings that when you boil it down animate every deed that we all do apart from Christ that makes us objects of wrath. It's the case that um, the actual sins that we end up committing, like the actual fruit from the root, if using this kind of agricultural metaphor, from the roots, the actual fruit that comes out is mostly dependent on circumstance, right? It's my joy to get to be in close relationship with a lot of the guys at his place, the recovery home here in town, and their stories are very, very similar. Many of them grew up in households where their parents did drugs, and so at age 12 or so, they get exposed to drugs and they start using them, and then by 15, they're into a life of criminal activity to support that drug habit, sinning in that way. But that, this guy's specific sins, they're just different than mine because I didn't grow up in a home where there was meth on the table when I was 12, right? So my sins took on a different face, a different flower, but ultimately, right, the root, if you boil his sins down and my sins down at root, it's the same root, just the desires of the body and the mind. We're lumped together in verse 3. Like the rest of mankind, we're all in this same boat together. It's actually one of, another one of these sort of games of our, of our, of our um, tilted interior scales where we try and judge others for their bad sins as a way to sort of self-justify ourselves, like ours aren't so bad. We draw these sort of lines in the sand. Um, it's actually been very interesting to me. I'll meet some guys sometimes at his place who aren't Christians. And even though they've lived lives of really rough debauchery and wickedness, they'll still draw a line in the sand, but I never did this sin over here, right? But we all do that at different scales. We just draw some line in the sand, well, I don't do those sins. And, and this is why Jesus tells us not to judge, because we're, our judgments are always false. They're always just self-justifying, so that I can put myself in the not-that-bad camp, and everybody and other people in the very bad camp. Now, if we want a true and honest um, examination of ourselves, we hold up the mirror of Scripture. 
And the scripture says that just our own selfish desire has warranted God's wrath. Um, I think sometimes the presentation of the truth is confused as uh, like an emotional exercise, like get worked up about this. And maybe the Holy Spirit might stir an emotional experience, but I want to say it's chiefly even just intellectual. Just to acknowledge these truths is a great difficulty, but it's a fundamental work that we do need to do. It's necessary, if we're to understand at all, the true gravity of the gospel that speaks into this very desperate situation. Verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2 only comes into relief if we actually believe the strong claim, the apocalyptic claim of verses 1 through 3. Verse 4 reads, But God, being rich in mercy, right after the verse about wrath, there are, these things are not opposite in God's character. It's actually the self-same love that would punish sin. There's the self-same love that would reach out in mercy from out of God's being. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And that dead is sort of a, implies at every level. We were morally dead. We were spiritually dead. We were doomed to physical death. And I think more present to the ancient mind than ours, the picture, the word death conjures the image of a corpse, right? Which is sort of, not sort of, which is loathsome and, and um, repugnant. That even while we were repugnant and loathsome to God, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. And Paul specifies very explicitly that it's not because of something we did, it's not because he found some of us deserving and others not, or something like that. Simply out of the abundance of his character, of his love, he made us alive together with Christ. That's why he says, by grace alone, by grace you have been saved. By grace, because of the free gift of God, we were thrown the, the life ring of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And by grace, he inspired us to have faith to grip onto that life ring and be saved from the doom that was coming our way. Um, it's such an important truth to St. Paul. He actually repeats it verbatim twice in the passage, right? By grace, you've been saved. He interrupts himself to sort of say, look, this is because of grace. And then he goes on to weave it into by grace, you've been saved through faith and not for any works of your own. We've been forgiven um, as a free gift, prompted out of God's own love, not because we were somehow special, apart from the rest of mankind. And uh, Paul then boils this whole picture down of the grace given to us in Christ's death and resurrection, in bringing us to faith to lay hold of his own life, and all these things, and he boils it down into this this great phrase, this kind of super concentrated theology, made us alive together with Christ. Alive together with Christ. Um, in Greek, it's actually just one word, alive together with. Alive together with is, is one word. It's a word that didn't exist in the Greek language, but prior to Paul's writing it. But as Paul's trying to capture like the, the enormity of these, this cosmic claim that us human beings are actually with Jesus in some real way, he has to coin this new word to contain it. Made alive together with. Alive, of course, in stark contrast to death. Right? Life lived now um, in the true knowledge of God. Life lived with 
the true moral scale of things filling our hearts and minds from the scriptures. Life that is now transformed by his gracious purposes for us. That's what it says that we go on to live a life doing the good works he's given us to do. Which is uh, in stark contrast to just doing what your own desires prompt you to do. Right? If you're doing what God has said to do, you're not following your own desires natively. You're following God's desires for your life. And that this life isn't essentially alone. It's a life with Christ. That's the with bit, made alive together with. Yeah, the only way I can really conceptualize this, and it's a weak metaphor, not as good as the biblical metaphors, but um, is it that kind of an, ele- an electricity metaphor? That like Christ is alive right now on his throne in heaven. And by his Holy Spirit, which I think of as sort of like a conduit of wire, the electricity, metaphorically speaking, of his life is now in our life. So because Christ died and rose again, that life that conquers death is now sort of like electrically (laughs) filling and animating our lives. That's how we're with him, joined with him. And so to kind of loop back around to close to our Lenten life, when we um, are trying to live in a somewhat more self-denying way, right? that's the idea of Lent, and we're giving up a specific luxury as a sort of signal prompt to try and live generally in a way that's less oriented to our own desires. What we're doing is we're trying to oppose the way we would naturally live by nature. By nature, we just follow our own desires. But part of the Christian life, which we really try and lean into in Lent in particular, is self-denial, the opposite of selfish desire. And we do this when we connect it, when we sort of anchor on that truth of made alive together with Christ, we don't do this like we're some Hindu stoic just trying to do something crazy. That would just be to replace one demon with another. We do it because it's Christ's power in us. Our own strength can't conquer self-will and make us holy. Only Christ can conquer self-will and make us holy. We're not doing it alone. We're doing it with him. And we don't get any credit. Right? If it was our strength, we could say, well, look at what a Christian I became this Lent. Right? What an what a impostorship that would be. No, we, we give glory to God. God is little by little, year by year, Lent by Lent, helping me to be, less, to be living less out of just the desires of my body and my mind. And to live less like the thing I was ransomed from and more like who he's called us to be. He gets the glory because he is the one who's doing the real work. Because he's with us. That's the marvelous truth, which I just invite you to reflect on as we kind of pivot around this fourth week of Lent into all, you know, Holy Week is now coming into view to remember this verse, that it's not our own strength. He made us alive together with Christ. Amen.